Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4? Let's open our Bibles and our hearts. Philippians chapter 4. And you're coming towards the end of the letter. What a beautiful letter. What a joy it has been. And would you please stand if you can? Let's read verses 10 through 20. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Oh, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Oh, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Oh, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Oh, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before You as children adopted through the blood of Christ. And we ask You to give us the bread of life. Lord, we, we pray, we often pray in this church, not because it's a tradition, not because it's a custom, but because we know our need, we know our dependence on You. So help us. You tell us that if we who are evil give good gifts to our children, how much more You will not give us the perfect gift. So we pray for Your Holy Spirit to be working in us and through us. As we saw last Lord's Day, both parties here have a responsibility. I have the responsibility of teaching, instructing, and giving sound doctrine. And the congregation has the responsibility of learning and receiving in a way that honors you. So help us. We can do nothing apart from Jesus and His power. So empower us. We also pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world right now. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Help your church to be obedient to you. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Music is very revealing of many things. The songs you sing, the music that's popular in our society is very revealing of the condition of our society. It's said, I don't remember who said that, but that the theme song of hell will be Frank Sinatra. What is the song? Yes, I did it my way. 
And if you're thinking about our culture, our society, and what song could be be playing right now, and we could see our society moving, our culture moving, uh, the beat of this song. There are many songs, many, especially popular songs, of how unhappy, of how angry, of how discontent people are. Probably Mick Jaggers, the Rolling Stones, and Todd, I know you know that. I saw him telling Stacia. <laughs> or, yeah, or the other one, I can get no what? What? The other one, very good, Todd. I can get no satisfaction, right? That's a mark of our culture. Dissatisfied, grumbling, complaining, resentment, lust, greed, covetousness. That's all the opposite of being content and grateful. Those are the marks of our society. And it's everywhere. Every talk show that you listen to or you watch, it doesn't matter if it's from the right or the left. It's a bunch of people complaining and discontent. Right? It doesn't matter if it's right or left. Everybody's discontent. Not satisfied. The whole goal, the purpose of advertising is pretty much to feed discontentment. People feeding you more and more lust and greed. Things that you do not need and you don't have the means to buy, but they're trying to propel you to buy those things. Things that you should be putting to death. It's actually feeding you to buy those things. One pastor noted the, the marks of a discontented society. He had a few. Here are three that he gives. Consumer debt. People are not content to live with whatever means they have. So they go into debt to live just a bit better than they can afford. High divorce rate. Why so much divorce in our culture? Discontentment. Discontentment with the spouse. And the other one I thought that was interesting. The suing of one another at astonishing rate. And why people are suing more and more is to get more money. So they can buy more stuff. So discontentment comes... In all sorts of ways, in all areas of society, and sadly, even inside the church, we see a bunch of people lacking contentment. People grumbling, complaining, sour, bitter, people discontent, lacking contentment in the Lord. That's heartbreaking. And as we think about contentment, we, we know how hard it is to learn, how hard it is to cultivate Contentment is not something that comes natural. It doesn't come naturally. Paul tells us he has learned. It's an art that we must master it. And the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that contentment does not come when things around us get better. That's what people tend to think. As soon as things around me get better, I will be content. 
So when my financial status, my financial situation improves, oh, then I can be content. Single people, well, when I have a spouse, then I can be content. And then it transfers. Once they get married, I can only be content when I have kids. And then they have kids. I can only be content when these kids leave my home. <laughs> Is, isn't that true? It's, it's just never ending. A better job. A new home. You name it. People are always saying, Oh, when I have that, then I will be content. And we know that's not true. That's not true because if we go back to the Garden of Eden, and you will never arrive here on this earth in a place like the Garden of Eden. Perfect harmony. Perfect shalom. Everything that you needed. And yet, what happens? We see the blossoming of discontentment. And we can go even backwards, farther backwards than Eden. Go to eternity in heaven. Do you think you can achieve with your own hands a place better than heaven? I hope not. And yet we have fallen angels. Discontentment. So we see that discontentment is not a matter of the surrounding. But within. It's your heart. That's the problem. The Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, he has a wonderful book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It was rare back then and it's rare today. Here's how he defines contentment, Christian contentment. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So as that sweet, inward, Quiet, instead of grumbling and arguing and complaining. Quiet, gracious frame of mind, of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Means God's providence, whatever He brings into our paths. Or, Thomas Watson, he has a book, another Puritan, The Art of Divine Contentment. And how we need to learn this art of divine contentment. Being content in Christ Jesus. Contentment in Christ is sweet. Don't you love to be around people who are content? Amen? It's so much better to be around people who are content than people who are sour, bitter, Always grumbling, murmuring, complaining. It's attractive. And that's what Paul is doing right here. He, he's taking this opportunity in the area of giving, receiving, and teaching us and the Philippians one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful gifts that the gospel can give us. And that's contentment. But that's what Paul is doing here. 
part, part of having the mindset of Christ, part of having the fronel, part of standing firm in the Lord, is being content in the Lord, finding satisfaction in Him. So, as we come to the context, that's important. You can see in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. It's one big paragraph. So, we are actually coming towards the final paragraph. So, after this, we just have the final greetings. So, that's the last section in the book of Philippians. And it actually it matches verses 3 through 11. Verses 3 through 11 is the prologue. And then here we have the epilogue. The last word and the first word, the beginning and the end. And Paul puts together. It's beautiful. Two book ends. And you can see, especially going through the Greek text, text the repetition of words that Paul uses in verses 3 through 11 and now in verses 10 through 20 in chapter 4. So, for example, in chapter 1, Verse 4, he talks about rejoicing and joy. Now, in chapter 4, verse 10, he once again repeats the joy and rejoicing. In verses 5 and 7 of chapter 1, he used the word koinonel and sunkoinonel. And now, here, in chapter 4, verse 14 through 15, he used again the same words, koinonel and sunkoinonel. Partnership, fellowship. In verse one, in chapter one, verse five, Paul talks about the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And now, in verse fifteen of chapter four, he talks about in the beginning of the gospel, talks about partnership. So same language. In chapter one, verse seven, Paul talks about his pronel towards them, and now he talks about their pronel towards Paul. There is also the repetition of the word to abound. In chapter 1, verse 9, he talks about their love abounding. And now Paul talks about him knowing how to abound in abundance. He talks about fruit in chapter 1, verse 11. And in chapter 4, verse 17, he talks about fruit. Same Greek word, karpos. And then he finishes chapter 1, 11 with to the glory of God. And he also finishes chapter 4, verse 20 with the glory of God. So we see, and for me that's the beauty of God's Word, the coherence. It's, it's just, you think about Paul, oftentimes he worked as a tent maker, and, and part of being a tent maker was to stitch together pieces of leather. And that's what we can see him doing that with the leather, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's stitching together the beginning and the end, and he makes this beautiful piece of art here. So, that's just giving you some introduction. I think it's important. The, the second aspect of introducing this, this part here, verses 10 through 20, is the need to understand the historical and theological background. Because as, as soon as you read this text, it can be very confusing. It's kind of hard to, to know why Paul is saying these things, what he's actually saying. And we need to understand the historical and the theological background behind Paul's words. I have been reading so many commentaries, journals, theological journals in Philippians, and you see how sometimes some scholars, they miss the, the point completely. So some scholars, they label this paragraph as a thankless thanks. And, and it makes sense if you read just in, in, 
Here, oh, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Oh, not that I'm speaking of being in need. So it can come across as, whoa, wait a second, is that a thank you or no thank you? Other scholars label this as thanks but no thanks. So, Craddock notes how some have labeled these verses as tense, detached, awkward, distant, and discordious. But the problem is, and here's why we misunderstand that, is, is that we come into the Bible bringing our culture, our society, our background, and we want the Bible to make sense in light of our American culture. No, 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 no. When you're reading the Bible, you go to their culture and learn what's going on in order to apply and understand the text. So, it's not because Paul doesn't say thank you in the way that, he's, that they would say thank you in first century Roman culture that Paul is being ungrateful. Okay, so that's very important. Paul is not ungrateful. He's actually teaching them some very important lessons. And also when you think about Paul, we know that he was very careful with money, with handling the Lord's money. It's not our money, it's the Lord's money. And Paul was always very careful. So for example, when he's raising money for the churches in Jerusalem, he tells the, the Christians in Corinth, here, get some of your men to accompany me to see how the money is going to be used. So he was always very careful, and he tells how he was always trying to do what was honorable in the eyes of the Lord and in the eyes of man. So it's fascinating that Paul had no hesitation in asking for money when it was related to other churches. So he's very clear in raising money for other churches. He's very clear about the duty of church members to provide for their elders, especially the teaching elders, 1 Timothy chapter 5. But when it came to him himself, Paul, he was very reserved. And we need to understand why. I have seen a lot of poor statements from Christians because they don't understand what was taking place here. So I have heard people say, oh, I really love that pastor because he doesn't get any money from the church. He works outside the church, just like Paul. And that's just misunderstanding completely the life of Paul, the ministry of Paul, and what was taking place in that society. So I have here. The reason why Paul was very careful when it came to receiving money, monetary gifts, is because giving material wealth, especially to teachers, was fraught with significance in ancient Greek, uh, Greco-Roman society. In ancient times, a financial gift, particularly to a philosopher or a teacher, oftentimes implied that the giver was the philosopher's big boss, the benefactor. Creating a sense of superiority. So, there were strong strings attached to giving and receiving in ancient times. Especially for a teacher like Paul. He, he resembled the, the philosopher of his days. 
He would be outside in these streets teaching, preaching, just like pagan philosophers would. And there was a problem with the pagan philosophers because they were always looking for people to give money to them. And once somebody gave money to them, they would come under. And they would become that teacher's boss. So that's, it. that's why it's so important to understand what Paul is doing, how Paul deals with money. Uh, one scholar, he says, Stephen Fowle, he says, Since, and I just ask you to bear with me, uh, we, part of preaching is teaching. And here is the teaching part that I really need to give you so you can understand a lot what's going on behind the ladders of the New Testament also. He says, since the practice of giving and receiving gifts is so deeply bound up with issues of power, status, and relations among people in the first century, it's not surprising that Paul treats this issue with some care. The offering and accepting or rejecting of financial, financial gifts is such a socially significant action that we will play a significant role in the relationship between Paul and the Philippians. Because the dominant culture views giving and receiving in, a particular, in particular ways, Paul must set the Philippians' gift into the right sort of Christ-focused context if it's not to shape his relationship with the Philippians in deleterious or harmful ways. So that's why Paul just doesn't say, thank you for your gift. He needs to teach them. He needs to instruct them. How in the kingdom of God, giving and receiving is very different from the kingdom of Rome. So that's why Paul takes pains, he's a pastor, and to teach and shepherd them how it is in the kingdom of God. The very important aspect of giving and receiving. Amen? So now you understand why Paul, especially with the churches in Corinth and, and Thessalonica, he has issues with giving and receiving. And he boasts that he didn't receive money, but he worked with his own hands. Why? Because now you know. Because pagan philosophers and teachers were very prone to get their money. And once you got their money, you'd feel superior, those who were giving. And that they could tell you what to do. And Paul is showing that's now how it works in the kingdom of Christ. So Paul is being very wise, very careful with his words to distance the church of Philippi from the kingdom of Rome and place them closer and closer to the kingdom of God. And it's beautiful how Paul... Some, some, some people say, oh, Philippians is a thank you letter. And they think that Philippians was written primarily to thank the Philippians for their gifts. I disagree with that. I think Philippians is a, fits very well with the farewell, ancient farewell. Paul is preparing them. Paul doesn't know if he will come, if, if he will die, if he will depart and be with the Lord, or if he's going to be with them. So he's preparing them. Just like Jesus prepared his disciples in John chapter 13 through 17, just like Paul prepares the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20. It's part of the farewell, preparing them, teaching them the gospel. And now, after the gospel is expounded, explained, now comes to this area of giving and receiving and how the gospel must teach us this area. Here's the outline. Uh, the outline is very simple. Verse 10 through 14, we have commendation, 
clarification and commendation. So Paul is commending the Philippians in verse 10, and then he's clarifying in verses 11 through 13, and then he commends them once again in verse 14. And today we will stay in verse 10. I had to lower anchor right there. And, and I hope that after the preaching is done, you say it was good for us to be in verse 10. It's so beautiful. It's so rich. It's so glorious. That it would be a crime to escape all the treasure that's here. So let's go to verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. I'm reading from the ESV. In the Greek, there is actually a preposition right in the beginning of the sentence. It's the second word in the sentence. And it brings the idea of a transition in the letter. Paul is bringing a transition here. And he's going to talk about something that he mentioned earlier. That's the gift that Philippians gave to them. So now he's going to expand that. And it's... It's beautiful how Paul, Paul writes that in these transitions. It would be something like that if, if we could be translating. Oh yes, and I must not forget. Before I finish this letter, let me bring that very important point to our minds now. And to capture Paul's heart here, uh, there are two Greek words that will help you to see what Paul is teaching and what Paul is doing here that we cannot see with the English translation. The first one, if you have the ESV, says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that now at length you have revived your what? Concern. Concern. We have been talking about a Greek word in Philippians. That It's a key Greek word. Do you remember what that word is? Fronel. Fronel. And that's exactly the word that Paul is using here. The word for concern is actually fronel. A key word. Hawthorne says that's the, that's the key verb in the whole letter to the Philippians. And you remember, fronel is a pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting connected to Christ's life. So, Stephen Fowl, he says, Throughout Philippians, Paul has used this verb, fronel, to indicate a particular disposition towards, and here's what fronel means, a Christ-focused pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. This cannot be well, be well expressed by words like care or concern. Paul is not invoking a therapeutic notion of care, such as is common in most American churches. No, the cruciform patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting that Paul desires to see formed in the Philippians may at times generate a warm and fuzzy emotional state. But that's not really at the heart of Paul's concern. Paul rejoices because the Philippians have again displayed a disposition to think and act in a particular way towards him, in the light of his tribulations. Specifically, this involved, among other things, sending Epaphroditus to him with a financial gift. We will get back here. We are going to talk more about that. But here's the second word. Let me 
The second word that's important in verse 10, and we don't see that in English, is the word revived. Anathalo. Actually, this word, it's a beautiful word from botanical studies. The word was used to describe trees and flowers bursting to bloom again in the springtime or plants sprouting afresh from the ground. So it's a beautiful picture of a, a beautiful flower blossoming. Gerald Hawthorne, he says, to translate anathalo as renew or revive or show is almost to mistranslate it. Paul is not here complaining, but marveling. Like a person rejoicing over the signs of spring after a hard winter, so Paul rejoiced to see again the signs of personal concern from Philippi after a long interval of silence. So imagine, imagine being Paul in that prison, that dungeon, dark place, and you have no idea. You simply hear the steps of a Roman soldier coming. And you can hear that there is somebody else because there is an extra pair of steps coming with the Roman soldier. And as soon as the Roman soldier opens the door, Paul can see whose face? Epaphroditus. More than ten years they hadn't seen each other. And Paul sees... In Epaphroditus, the church of Philippi. And what he says is, I, for me that was just the end of the winter time. And spring was here. And I could see you blossoming again. And producing those beautiful fruits that I knew that was always there. As Song of Songs says, Behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on earth. The time of singing has come. That's how Paul sees Epaphroditus. He hugs him. They kiss each other. What a wonderful visit it is. And then Paul goes on to explain. Indeed, you had, he says, you had the Christ-focused pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting towards me. But you had no opportunity He's clarifying. It's not like I was angry and mad at you. You did not have the opportunity. The Greek word is ah. The prefix is ah. It's a negative, no. And then you have from the word you have kairos. Season. I was lacking the season under God's providence. That's what Paul is saying. We don't know what hindered. And you might ask, what hindered? Ten years that the Philippians and Paul, they had not been in touch with each other. What hindered them? We don't know. Some scholars, for example, F.F. F. Bruce, he believes that was Paul himself. Because he was having some issues with other churches in relation to receiving financial gifts. So Paul himself said, no, no, don't send me anything right now. We just don't know. We don't know uh, the reason. We just know that Paul is by no means... Blaming them. He's actually praising them. Thanking them. The Philippians' heart, the Philippians' affections, the Philippians' desire were ready. As soon as the opportunity came, they performed their sacrifice by sending their best men with their best offering. 
was all there, ready. The willingness, the desire, just waiting for the Lord to open His doors of providence so they could give to Paul. And I think it's beautiful. And sadly, what happens in many of our churches is the opposite. It's the opposite. In America, we have so many opportunities to give. There's a box right there. We have so many opportunities to give. And people have no fronel. No thinking, feeling, and acting to give. That's heartbreaking. For many Christians in America, we can change the words of Paul and say, you had many opportunities, but you had no affection, desire, and willingness to give. May this never be said of you. Some of you don't give, not because you don't have opportunity, <laughs> but because you don't have the mind of Christ, the pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that resembles the generosity and the sacrifice of Christ. And it's, as I said before, there's no straightforward thank you. Like we, 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 we use... We, Often do in our culture. Oh, thank you so much. Paul doesn't do that. Why? As we said, because he is teaching them something very important about the gospel. Paul could be bringing some confusion to that church if he had just said thank you. Some members, some maybe some new members, some old members of the church of Philippi. Once Paul said thank you for your offering could see that Paul was now under their control. That's why Paul is very careful. Paul wants them to understand that giving and receiving the kingdom of Jesus will not affect one's social status. To quote Stephen Fowle once again, he says, No doubt Paul is grateful to the Philippians. Nevertheless, by phrasing the issue this way at the outset, Paul makes it clear that he and the Philippians are not in a conventional relationship of reciprocity. Because issues of giving and receiving are also bound up with issues of power and status, it's crucial for Paul to make it clear that the Philippians, to the Philippians that they and he are common partners in God's work. Their care for each other always has this element in view. As verses 17 through 20 explicitly Note, while the Philippians' gift to Paul helps him, it also deepens their relationship with God, who supplies their needs and who is finally the, the recipient of glory. Listen to this. Hence, giving and receiving between the Philippians and Paul does not profoundly alter their status in relation to each other. They are slaves of Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is teaching them. That's how he opens his letter. He's slaves of Christ Jesus. And now he's teaching them that the giving and receiving in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with the kingdom of Rome. In the kingdom of God, giving and receiving does not affect one's status. Because we are all what? Uh, slaves. 
So it's beautiful how careful Paul is in making sure that the gospel of Jesus, not the cultural norms, the gospel is instructing their minds as it comes to giving and receiving. And we all here need to be instructed by the gospel. Amen? When it comes to giving and receiving. So many of us have been instructed by a certain Christian culture that's not biblical when it comes to giving and receiving. And we must be taught by Jesus and the gospel how he functions, giving and receiving. And that's what Paul is doing here. And we know that Paul has been teaching the Philippians. He has been emphasizing over and over again about the importance of having godly examples. Amen? How often Paul talks about imitating him, imitating others who are faithful. And we saw that last Lord's Day, how the Christian life requires Christians to be imitating those who embody the Christian teaching. Much of the Christian life is learning, not just in the formal setting, but the informal setting of spending time with more mature Christians. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's now setting an example of a man full of contentment. And Paul is going to show them that contentment in Christ is manifested through the way we thinking about the way we think about each other and the source of our rejoicing. So here, in verse 10, we see a beautiful example of a man who is thinking about whatever is holy, honorable, lovely. That was just what Paul had commanded them earlier. Paul and the Philippians, they love each other. Remember the words of affection that Paul tells the Philippians? My crown, my joy, my beloved, whom I long for. And they have this deep, profound partnership with each other. And it has been ten years now. Ten years, a decade or more, that they have not been able to see each other and spend time with each other. We must remember that there were no emails, no texting. How could Paul not get a hold of the Philippians? How could the Philippians not get a hold of Paul? Right? But we say that because we are used to emails. Quick letters. There's no PayPal. There's no GoFundMe. Now think about Paul, about his life. From prison to prison. Moving. Having to escape a city because he's been persecuted. Dragged like a dead man. How can you find a man like that? Shipwrecked. Imagine you're getting a ship in ancient times and suddenly you have no idea where you're going to stop. And then you're shipwrecked in another town. Who knows where Paul is? Is he dead? Can you see why it could take so long for them not to be able to see each other? It's not as easy as it's today. You can go to most places in India, in Africa, and you're going to have internet access today. Not back in the day. 
So we see how under God's providence, the Philippians lacked the opportunity to share with Paul their financial offering. We have no idea what's going on, but we know that it was very easy for something like that to take place. Where is Paul? Who can find Paul? Shipwreck. He's in an island for a long time now. Oh, now he was in Ephesus, in Caesarea. Oh, they transferred him from Caesarea to another town. Where is Paul? And maybe you have one, another person, but how are you going to contact the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, the church in Ephesus? It's complicated. That's God's providence in separating these two partners in the gospel. So when, when Epaphroditus stepped into Paul's dungeon, his prison, there was no bitterness in Paul's heart. No resentful. Actually, he jumped. And he embraces him. That's why he says, And I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Here's a man who just told us, Think, think about whatever is what? True. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is holy. Whatever is just. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is commendable. If there is any excellency, any praiseworthy, think about these things. And as soon as the Epaphroditus comes into that prison, he sees a man who has been feeding his mind with lovely thoughts. How honorable. How lovely it is the way that Paul thinks about the Philippians. Paul did not cultivate a harsh, evil, sour pattern of thinking towards them. Ten years. And Paul says, oh, I knew. I knew. As soon as the Lord would open the door, I knew that you had me in your heart just as I have you in my heart. Because it's Paul who tells us, that love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not resentful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And when Paul tells us to think about lovely things, he's implying, as he's showing here, that we must be thinking these things towards one another. Epaphroditus saw with his own eyes a man who nurtured and trained his mind to think these type of things towards others. They had proved their love towards Paul. Paul had proved his love towards them. And he cultivates this type of thinking. Thinking lovely things towards them. You see how easy it would be for Paul to be in that prison by himself. And be thinking, I knew, I knew, I knew that that was going to take place. I knew the Philippians would just stop loving me and supporting me. I knew since the beginning. Look at all my scars in my back. I gave my life for them. And what, ten years and no offering. See how easy it is to think evil things, unlovely things towards others? Instead, he declares, I rejoice greatly, immensely in the Lord. 
And I knew. That's why I don't like revive. It's not like was dead. No, was always was always alive. The the nutrients were always there. Was just waiting for God's dark providence to be removed and the sun of His grace to shine, and that the fruits would be coming once again. How lovely, how honorable it is, the way that this man thinks about others. Ten years, ten years without receiving a gift from this church. And yet, thinking, honorable, commendable, lovely, truthful things about the Philippines. It's amazing how quickly some Christians are to think evil, to think unlovely things towards other brothers and sisters. How quick, how fast they are to harvest a crop of bitter thoughts, sour thoughts towards others. We have seen people, sadly, in this church, who were with us years, year after year, receiving love, receiving sound teaching, receiving financial help, receiving counseling, helping people moving. And when they didn't get what they wanted, when they wanted, evil, Harsh, unlovely thoughts towards this church. As soon as they don't get what they want, they harvest sour, bitter, evil thoughts, especially towards the leaders, the targets. They cannot and will not think holy, honorable, lovely things. They do not think about God's providence in hindering them of receiving what they want so bad at that time. All the years of love, proved love, proved love towards people. And instead of cultivating lovely thoughts, noble thoughts, they're so quick to think unlovely, evil, harsh, sour thoughts and walk away without even shaking our hands. Years of loving, giving yourself to them. And as soon as they don't get what they want, it's a matter of weeks. They walk away and they don't even shake your hands. Sometimes you get a nasty email. Let us cultivate a mind, a mind that sees and thinks what is lovely, honorable, holy. Especially towards people who have proved their love towards you. And especially during hard times. Because it's easy to cultivate lovely thoughts when everything is going well. Cultivate lovely thoughts when things are hard. Ten years without receiving a gift in jail, in prison, a horrible place. That's Paul. Amen? So we see a, a beautiful example here of one who is doing what he commanded in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. But also, and finally, we see an example of rejoicing in the Lord. Look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1.
Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say again, rejoice. And now, what is Paul doing? What is Paul doing? Rejoicing the Lord. He's setting an example for them to follow. A man in prison. A man unable to do the things he loves the most. Hindered. And yet rejoicing in the Lord greatly. Look at his joy. I rejoice in the Lord what? Greatly. His joy in the Lord is not meager, puny, stingy. It's actually megalos. We're going to get mega, gigantic, immense. That's his joy. And you can see now, once you, you go through this verse, and now you can step back and see why Paul is rejoicing greatly in the Lord. Why is he rejoicing greatly in the Lord? Because he got money in his pocket? Why? Because now he can see in the Philippians the Christ-focused pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. That's why he's rejoicing greatly in the Lord. Because he can see the fruit of his labor. People becoming more like Christ. That's why he rejoiced greatly in the Lord. Not because of the monetary gift but because the Philippians are manifesting the fronel of Christ. He's overwhelmed with joy and happiness because the church in Philippi is showing what he commended from them in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this fronel, have this mindset, this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that's yours in Christ Jesus. And now they're demonstrating that. So let me ask you, and that's a very important question. Do you rejoice greatly in the Lord when you see your brothers and sisters growing into Christ's likeness? Do you rejoice greatly, immensely in the Lord because you can see your brothers and sisters walking like Christ? Having the pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting like Jesus? Do you know anything about rejoicing greatly in the Lord because your church is growing into Christ's likeness? When was the last time you rejoiced greatly in the Lord and you thanked the Lord for some of the members of this church and the growth that you have been seeing in their lives? The Apostle John, he writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that uh, my children. He's not talking about his earthly children. He's talking about the church. That my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking like Christ. May we forsake our selfish, individualistic lives, always so concerned with ourselves, and start beholding the grace of God in the life of others. Remember what Paul wrote earlier in chapter 2? Oh, in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition and vainglory. 
Oh no. Place others. Look at the grace of God in other people's lives. Man, that will help with contentment. The reason we're, we're so discontent is because we're always focusing on ourselves. And when you start looking at other people and seeing the grace of God and their growth into Christ's likeness, our heart should just be enlarged with happiness and joy and be content in the Lord. So I rejoice in the Lord greatly, immensely. And you can just picture, that's what I did this week, I was picturing Paul. And it's hard to imagine how nasty was his prison cell. We have a completely messed up idea of prison where people are watching TV and they have cable TV and they can work out and they can eat food and be warm. No, that's a dungeon. And you remember, he has to pay for his own rental. That's the right thing. If you're going to be arrested and use something, you better pay for that. Not our money paying for people who do wrong things. He needs to support. He needs to pay his own prison. And now imagine Epaphroditus after 10 years. 10 years. Epaphroditus, remember how he came to see Paul? How ill he got on the way? He almost died. And now he comes and he has a bag. Imagine traveling from Philippi, I don't know, Caesarea, Ephesus, Rome. We don't know where Paul was, but it was a long trip with a bag full of coins. Maybe some dry fish. Maybe some clothes that some ladies in the church. Maybe a new pair of sandals for Paul. And as soon as the man comes... And he looks at his face. He rejoices greatly in whom? In the Lord, because he sees the Lord right there. He sees the Lord providing for him. Lord, when did we provide for you? Matthew 25. So when he gets that money with coins, with food, he sees the sacrifice of Christ and the caring love of the Father towards Him in the life of the Philippians. The same way that the Philippians saw Christ in Paul, in the same manner that the Philippians saw the love of the Father in Paul who would be willing to sacrifice his whole life to preach the Gospel to them. Now Paul sees the sacrifice of Christ and the love of the Father in providing a sacrificial offering towards Him. That's why he says, I rejoice greatly, not in the money, but in the Lord. I could see the Lord in your offering and in your sacrifice. And I would like to take the opportunity to say that I rejoice greatly in the Lord because of your, your fronel. Your pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting the Lord. If some of you had the opportunity to hear we praying at home, you'd hear us praying as a family. Father, we thank You. We thank You for a gracious cross, Reformed Church. We thank You for our church. For their pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. Willing to give to this local church in order to support us. 
I rejoice greatly in the Lord because of your love, your partnership. I give my life for you and you show by giving sacrificially towards this ministry of the Word of God. And I'm not saying that as Paul says in verse 11, because I'm in need and I'm trying to manipulate you. You know very well when it's needed, I get a different job and I keep pastoring. I have no problem with that. But I rejoice greatly in the Lord because I see the fruit of the labor of preaching the Word Sunday after Sunday. The mindset of Christ. A willingness to sacrifice. Give sacrificially to this church. And if you're not giving sacrificially, you should be ashamed. And start giving. Enter into partnership with this body. Show that you have this mind in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And causes me and causes other missionaries to rejoice greatly in the Lord. Because of our partnership in the Lord. So, my prayer is that the Lord would preserve us. That the Lord would help us to be content in the Lord. And that this contentment in the Lord would be manifested in the way that we think about each other. Lovely thoughts. Holy thoughts. Honorable thoughts. And also that we would be rejoicing in the Lord greatly because of His work in the lives of our brothers and sisters. That's contentment right there. That's a powerful step in contentment. And for those who are not in Christ Jesus, I believe there are people here right now that they are outside Christ. Let me tell you, you will never be content outside Christ. You will never be satisfied. Because true contentment, true satisfaction can only be found in Jesus. He's the source of all contentment, all satisfaction, all delight. And today His arms are wide open. Just say, come to me and find contentment. Come to me and find satisfaction. So today is the day. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for sending Your Son, Your only begotten Son, to save us, to rescue us. To be the offering that we desperately needed. And Lord, we thank You. We thank for this book of Philippians. How beautiful, how powerful, how wonderful it has been, Lord. And help us. Help us to be content. Help us to be satisfied in You. Help us to have lovely, holy, honorable thoughts towards one another. And empower us, Holy Spirit, to rejoice in the Lord greatly. Because of the work you have been doing in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.